you're ready to learn something about US horse racing history, you've come to the right address. Welcome to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. This week's guest is a little bit different from some of the other uh, industry people I've had on, you know, jockeys, trainers, broadcasters. I'm joined by a racing historian, someone that's actually directly involved in preserving and spreading some of the beautiful and historic tales when it comes to horse racing in the United States. Brian Bouye, Director of Communications at the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs, New York. He's also a published author. He wrote Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing, The Remarkable Life of John Morrissey. And he wrote... The Travers, 150 years of Saratoga's greatest race in conjunction with Michael Veach. So I'm just going to let you uh, sit here and enjoy and soak up all the knowledge because I certainly learned a fair bit. Very pleased to be joined by someone that has a fair bit of knowledge when it comes to how racing commenced in the United States, as well as how we got to where we are now. Brian, I'm so glad to have you with me. Can you tell me and the listeners a little bit about what is it that you normally do on a day-to-day basis? And how did you get interested in, in sort of all the background when it comes to thoroughbred racing stateside? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I've I've always had an interest in racing. Uh, I grew up right near Saratoga Springs. So, uh, you know, we've got, you know, the oldest thoroughbred track in America here, which was uh, established in 1864. So I grew up going to the track a bit as a kid. Um, you know, I, I was interested in the sport. I, I thought it uh, uh, was tremendous fun, even though I didn't know a lot about it at the time. It was just kind of go to the track with the family, enjoy a nice day. Um you know, but after college, I got involved in media and uh, I worked for a couple of local newspapers and I wound up taking a job as a sports editor at the Saratogian, uh, where we put out a daily racing supplement called the Pink Sheet during racing season, which was just wall to wall racing coverage. And, uh, you know, I really fell in love with the sport, the day to day aspects of it. And, uh, you know, had a lot of fun with that there at the newspaper. And then a few years later, I joined the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. Uh, as the communications director, and I later became the director of the Hall of Fame as well. So I've been involved in the sport now for uh, probably at least 15 years. So it's a a great amount of fun. And uh, my duties at the museum involve everything relating to the Hall of Fame processes, overseeing the the elections and the induction ceremony, all of our publications, um, our website, a lot of historical uh, uh, content and programming, and just a lot of basic day-to-day stuff that's needed here at the museum. So it's it's great fun to to be part of such a tremendous history of sport. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in Saratoga? Completely understand that you fell in love with thoroughbred racing when you're close to a place that seems to have thoroughbreds and horse racing embedded in everything that it does. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I love Saratoga. It's, it's certainly my favorite track, but, you know, I, I love basically 
traveling to all the different places I get opportunities to go to. Um, you know, I love Keeneland and Churchill Downs and uh, Gulfstream and the California tracks. And, and recently I made my first visit to Arlington Park. So, um, you know, I've been to several tracks. I went to Got, got a chance to go to Suffolk Downs a few times before it closed. Um, so I, I, I like all aspects of the sport, whether it's kind of the, the small time, you know, kind of out of the way stuff or, you know, being at a Breeders' Cup on a big day. So um, it's, it's great fun, every aspect of it. I agree with you. I love the sort of smaller boutique tracks and, and their environment as well. Let's get started with some more generic sort of horse racing history. I want to pick your brain later, though, about the Hall of Fame process that you mentioned as well, because that's something that majority of us don't exactly know how it works i'd love to kind of lay that out so everyone's a little bit more comfortable with it and understands what's what but let's start i guess at the beginning not your beginning or your career beginning but how did racing come to the u.s and when did it commence stateside yeah, I, I mean, thoroughbred racing is is by far the the oldest sport in America. Um, you know, as as uh, America was colonized, racing began pretty soon after that. Um, there are three foundation stallions in racing, and these were uh, these were Arab progenitors, and uh, they came through England. The three the three stallions were the Byerly Turk, the Darley Arabian, and the Godolphin Arabian, and uh, they were bred. Uh, they bred to English horses and that basically started thoroughbred racing in England, which came over to the United States later on. Um, still to this day, those three foundation stallions, uh, any thoroughbred that's registered can trace their lineage all the way back to those three horses. Um, and, th- and these horses go back to uh, the, the late 17th century um you know, so we're talking the Byerly Turk when it was foaled in 1680. Uh, the Darley Arabian came along 20 years later, and the Godolphin Arabian was the the latest of those three to be born in 1729. So um, those three foundation stallions really set the tone for thoroughbred breeding and racing. And, uh, you know, it was very informal when it came to America. There weren't really early tracks, you know. Um, they were cutting trails out of the woods to, to have races. Uh, it was a lot of Southern farmers and, you know, these sort of things started out basically as kind of rivalries, you know, my horse is faster than your horse. Oh no, it's not. So let's, let's have a race and find out. Um, and it was very big in the South and, you know, Virginia and places like that. Um, then it kind of came north and you know there was rivalries that started between the north and the south um and probably the biggest early racing event in in america was uh in 1820 the horse american eclipse um was a northern horse bred in new york and uh there was a lot of pride in battle between a, a horse called sir henry uh which was a virginia bred horse and these two horses met in a match race at the Union course on Long Island. And it's pretty amazing to think about in 1820, they managed to get 60,000 people for this race. It was really the first big spectacle in America. Um, and, and American Eclipse won. He, he never lost a race in his career. He won the, the heat races of this. So uh, that really kind of started. And then there were you know, a lot of match races between North and South uh, leading up to the Civil War. And uh, tracks kind of came and went and popped up more informally. So those were kind of the roots. Um, then the Civil War really uh, curtailed racing in a lot of places, except for Saratoga. Um, 
you know, just a few days after or a few weeks after the uh, Battle of Gettysburg, Saratoga opened for the first time. Uh, John Morrissey, who was a, a boxer and a future politician, uh, managed to get a lot of the Southern breeders to come up during the Civil War. So you had people from Kentucky and Virginia, uh, Georgia, a lot of the Southern states participating in thoroughbred racing in Saratoga while there was a Civil War going on. So it's it's got a lot of great history. Oh, it certainly has a. Just before we move move on to you know talking about Saratoga and how it's well it's viewed as one of the oldest major sporting venues in, in the country. When did the first race course pop up in the U.S.? You know, it's really hard to say because a lot of them were kind of informal. Um, the, the first the first major track that, you know, is probably uh, familiar to a lot of people that you might see in the history books, um, you know, I would say would be the Union Course on Long Island. Um, there were a couple different versions of it, but the, the one that became famous, I mean, this was already, uh, you know, the late, the late, um, the late 17th century, there were there were courses every, starting to pop up everywhere. Uh, but I would say the Union Course on Long Island was probably the first famous one. Okay. And, and do you know anything about, you know, how many people could it hold or what was the track circumference? I, I'm just, you know, yeah, curious it's, here. You, you can see, like, if you look, uh, you know, if you kind of go, go online, you can see some old, uh, you know, kind of Courier and Ives prints about kind of what racing scenes looked like earlier on. Um, they were kind of different everywhere you went, you know, that some of the tracks were uh, laid out a lot better than others. Um, the first year that they had racing at Saratoga, um, it was the year before they actually built the track that is currently here. And uh, they raced at an old trotting track. And this was kind of across the street from the main track. And that had been there since the 1840s. Um, and when they were carting races at a mile, uh, they didn't realize that the course was short. It was almost 300 yards short of a mile. Um, it wasn't very well uh, laid out circumference wise. So it was a little uh, oblong and everything. So th they had a lot of trials and errors with these courses. Some of them held a lot of people. Some of them didn't even have, a lot of them didn't even have grandstands. They would people just kind of crowd around the fencing. Uh, you'll see that in kind of some of the old prints. Saratoga did have a small grandstand when it started. Uh, the union course, as I mentioned with that match race from 1820, I mean, they had, uh, uh it was reported anywhere between 55 and 60,000 people attending that one race. Which is an incredible number for the time. How did that come out? Like, how was horse racing initially received, and and when did it really start to gain popularity among people? Pretty early, it was it was received very well. Upon um, you know, we had uh, in this country, uh, you know, it there was nothing else to do really from an entertainment perspective. I mean, you have to think about the fact that there really was. There was no baseball, no football, no basketball, hockey, any of the modern sports that it competes with. Um, like I said, it started informally, but this this became a matter of pride for uh, the breeders, the farms, the states. And when it kind of turned into this north versus south thing, um, you know, by by the eight, early 1800s, you know, racing was very popular in this country. And let's hope it will continue to stay popular for a long time to come. And Saratoga, as I highlighted, it, it's seen as one of the oldest major sporting, you know, places in the U.S., but it's not the oldest horse racing track, right? Well, there there were some, you know, county fair tracks and stuff like that. Um, the, the site that the fairgrounds is on in New Orleans uh, had racing kind of intermittently here and there. Um, but, you know, Saratoga is generally regarded as the oldest thoroughbred track still in existence. Um you know, there's a place out in California that claims something earlier as well. Um, I believe there's another harness track that, that was there 
um, here and there, but they weren't all consistently running, you know, from their origin to where they are now. So um, Saratoga is the oldest major sporting venue. And the one indeed still in operation and flying high as we're speaking, a racing starts again on Wednesday. This is Tuesday that we're recording. Is in general, when, when you say, of course, Saratoga is one of the oldest venues regarded, does that mean that probably the pivotal race to Saratoga, the Traverse Stakes, is maybe one of the most historic major races in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the Travers was first run in 1864, and they've had a few intermittent uh, pauses there. Um, yeah, in, in 1896, the track had financial issues and the track didn't even open at all that summer. Um, and then for a few years when, when racing was struggling at Saratoga, they didn't have the Travers. Um, 1911 and 1912, uh, there was there was a gambling ban in New York, so it, it didn't run then either. And then they had a couple of years during World War II where they raced the Travers at Belmont Park because of uh, wartime travel restrictions. But uh, the Travers is going to have its 152nd running this summer um you know and if you look at its history i mean this is a race that predates the kentucky derby by 11 years it predates the preakness by uh eight years and it predates the belmont by three years so it's older than any of the triple crown races um there's a couple races in the country that are older uh the phoenix hotel stakes at keeneland uh traces its roots back to uh I believe it's 1830 something. Uh, so it goes way wow. further back. Um, and as far as North American races, the Queens Plate uh, up in, up at Woodbine in Canada is a few years older than the Travers. Um, but for North American three-year-old thoroughbreds, um, yeah, the, the, the Travers is, is the granddaddy. And I, you are a published writer. You've written two books and one of them is about the history of this race. You must have a, a personal favorite renewal, and if so, which one? Well, as, as far as the ones that I've actually attended, um, I, I would have to say the 1994 uh, edition, that Holy Bull one here, uh, it was a phenomenal race. Um you know, he did kind of all of the dirty work up front early on with a very hot pace. Uh, Wayne Lucas had a rabbit in there to, to try to tire him out for another late running horse. And, uh, you know, Holy Bull was right there with those early fractions. And at the end, he really had to, to hold on for dear life. But he, he ran one of the gutsiest races I've ever seen that day. Um, it's been a lot of phenomenal history. Uh, in 2012, they had a dead heat here in the Travers that I that I saw, which was the first time they had a dead heat in that race since all the way back in 1874. Um, you know, American Pharaoh, the Triple Crown winner, came in here as as kind of the conquering hero, and then he got beat by Keen Ice. Um, <laughs> you know, so we've had a lot of memorable races like that. Uh, the following year, uh, Arrogate came in here and ran arguably with the most brilliant race I've ever seen at Saratoga. The only horse to run a sub two minute mile on the dirt at Saratoga ever. Um, you know, so there've been a lot of just incredible ones that I've personally seen. And then you go through history and you start seeing the names of the horses that have won this race. You know, when you start looking at Man of War and Whirl Away, the only uh, triple crown winner to win the Travers as well. Um, a lot of great upsets in this race. Uh, 1930, Jim Dandy beats Gallant Fox at odds of 100 to 1. Um, wow. You know, so it's, it's got an amazing history to it. From all those races, I know that was before your time, but which one would you have loved to have seen in person? 
I, I'm a huge Man of War fan, so I would have loved any opportunity to to see that horse uh, run in person. Um, you know, it's it, it's so hard to tell different eras and compare them and everything. But it, you know, this is a horse that really has stood the test of time. Um, you know, the, the times he ran way back then, you know, a lot of them still resonate today. Um, and obviously services change and equipment changes and the way people, uh, you know, way tracks are, you know, maintained and everything. So there's a lot of factors, but he did things that are still marveled at a hundred years later. So I would have done anything to, to see him race once. And you highlighted there's been a fair few upsets at the spa. I mean, it's kind of colloquially sometimes known as the graveyard of champions, what is it that makes it so tough to win out there? Well, I, I think it's I think it's the the fact that you know the competition is so good, and you you look at these races where you have big upsets and everything, and, and you look at the horses that win. Um, you know, they're still good horses. I mean, to, to race at Saratoga, uh, you know, you have to have a quality horse, and that that goes whether it's a uh, a claiming race or a, you know, a major grade one. So uh, the competition is very tough here and, and horses that can get dismissed and overlooked a little bit, they're still pretty good. And uh, you know, if you follow racing long enough, you'll know that uh, on any given day, some horse can run the race of his life, his or her life. And uh, you know, probably beat just about anybody out there. So that's, that's what makes racing so exciting is just, uh, you know, you can handicap it and do all the analysis. And at the end of the day, if that horse is feeling great, you know, he might spoil your party a little bit. Yeah. Or it's about, you know, where in the race are they? Are they getting luck in running or are they stuck somewhere on the rail and, and then just stop? Uh, there's always things happening that you haven't foreseen as a handicapper. It, it can be so frustrating when you feel like you were on the best horse, but then they get beaten by, by nose because they just came too late with their rally, uh, so to speak. So yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so many factors that go into a race, you know. Uh, the, the jockeys have to, you know, time everything right. And, you know, the type of horse they're on, they have to figure it out. Are they on an early speed horse? Are they on a stalker? Are they on a, a one-run late closer? Um, you know, uh, it, it just so much goes on if a horse gets pinched on the rail, like you said, or, you know, just, just something strange can happen and uh, it changes the entire complexion of a race. It really does. Let's talk a little bit more about your role at the National Museum of Racing and, and Hall of Fame. I'm assuming you're not as hands-on with people coming through your doors, but is there a particular part of the, the museum as well as racing history that most people tend to take a, a shine to or an interest in? Or are there certain questions that people seem to ask often? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I do try to to get down and visit with as many people as I can. And, uh, you know, I, I think what's interesting about the people that come through the museum is the fact that you get uh, quite a wide range of peoples who, who either uh, are absolute experts on the sport who are, you know, know tons of details. And then you have people that come through that are, that are just learning. And, uh, you know, we, we want to be able to educate them as much as possible, whether it's about, uh, you know, the early history of the sport that we were talking about or different eras or, you know, kind of what it takes to, you know, become a hall of fame jockey or a trainer or, you know, a racehorse. So, um, you know, I think we have something for everybody here at the museum. You know, we have a, a fine collection of equine art. Uh, we have trophies and artifacts that are from some of the most important races in the country's history. Uh, but we have a lot of fun stuff, too. We have a racing simulator uh, that you can ride, you know, to kind of feel like you're either in a training act. Uh, uh, you know, training for a race or you can do it where, you know, you're actually simulating a mile and a quarter race. Um, 
you know, we have a, a lot of children's activities. Uh, we have a new signature film called What It Takes Journey to the Hall of Fame, which is a 360 degree cinematic experience um, that I really don't think there's any other Hall of Famer museum has anything like this. Uh, the Kentucky Derby Museum has a, a somewhat different film uh, that's in the round, um, but it, ours is a different experience and it kind of blends into the the interactive Hall of Fame. So I think there's something for everybody here. And, uh, you know, we try to, uh, you know, balance it as much where if, if you're not experienced in knowing racing, that you can learn things here pretty easily as well. You touched upon something that I, I wanted to, to pick your brain about as well. What is required of a jockey, a, a thoroughbred, a trainer to get into the Hall of Fame? What does it take? Well, it's like everything else. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's subjective. You know, what what some people may determine is, is a Hall of Famer or think is a Hall of Famer uh, might not be an agreement, which always has a lot of lively debate among people. Um, we have different categories. So we have horse, jockey, trainer, and pillar of the turf, uh, which is kind of a pioneer or leadership capacity or somebody who, you know, influenced the game off of the track. Uh, we induct steeplechase category as well. So, um you know, we have basic criteria. Um, you know, a, a, a trainer has to have been uh, eligible for 25 years or have trained for 25 years uh, before they're eligible, a jockey for 20 years, and a horse has to be retired for five years. Beyond that, we, we leave it up to kind of our nominating committee to shape a ballot every year. And this is a group of uh, expert journalists, historians, uh, people who have been familiar with the game for, you know, in most cases, 20 plus 30 plus years. Um, and then once they determine those finalists, we send out a ballot to a nationwide voting panel of about 175 people who uh, they can vote for as many or as few candidates as they believe are worthy of the Hall of Fame. And uh, those are our selections each year. And we also have a different category called the Historic Review Cat Committee, which looks at candidates uh, who have not been active within the past quarter century. So they do a lot of research into these candidates. Um, we're still going through history. As we know that racing has gone all the way back to colonial times, we're still you know, reviewing and analyzing uh, you know, people and horses who participated back then. One of our inductees this year is a racehorse named Tom Bowling, who raced in the 1870s. So, you know, while American Pharaoh is going in this year, too, uh, a great modern candidate, you know, we're still looking at the past as well. It, this is, of course, the ballot and, and the nominations are something that is, you know, quite a topic of discussion in horse racing. I think, like you said, everyone has uh, an opinion on it. And it's quite subjective. What in the end sways the actual, you know, admittance to the Hall of Fame? Is it the ballot count or is there some other process in play? Well, like I said, the, the different committees kind of do some different stuff. So the uh, the main contemporary ballot that the voters receive um, to, to get into the Hall of Fame, they have to receive majority support. So they have to be okay. above. So they have to of all the ballots that are cast. Uh, the candidates on there have to receive over 50% approval uh, to be elected to the Hall of Fame. So um, the other committees are a little bit different. So like the Historic Review Committee uh, has 12 members on it and they come up with finalists and then they vote on those finalists just among that group of uh, the committee members. So 12 members on the committee, it requires 75% of the approval from them to get into the hall of fame. If you're uh, a steeplechase candidate, a historic review candidate or a pillar of the turf candidate. Okay. Well, we'll move back to um, 
some more operational details, but I wanted to get the Hall of Fame information first and foremost, because the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame wasn't operating last year due to the pandemic, but you're fully back now, right? What what are your hours or how can people uh, visit? Yeah, absolutely. We are we are open daily from nine to five uh, throughout the race meet uh, every day, Monday through Sunday. Uh, we're located right across the street from Saratoga Racecourse, so you can't miss us. Um, if you want to check us out online, the, the website is racingmuseum.org, or you can call us at 518-584-0400. Uh, we have a lot of daily activities here at the museum. Um, Tom Durkin, the retired uh, uh, race caller, probably the, the greatest voice in the history of thoroughbred racing, does a daily tour here at the museum, um, you know, several days a week. Uh, we do tours of the backstretch of Saratoga Race Course. So if you haven't uh, had the opportunity to go over to these places, you know, that place, you'll get an opportunity through our tour. Um, and then we have uh, several daily showings of our new film that I was mentioning before um, about the Hall of Fame, What It Takes. Wait, so how often a day does Tom Durkin give a tour? I want to get a tour, a tour just with one, him. <laughs> just once a day. He does, he does okay. 11, he does 11 a.m. Um, he, he, do, he doesn't do it during the uh, um, a couple days a week. He's got kind of a set schedule that you can find on our website. Um, just look up the Tom Durkin tours. And uh, he's such a great storyteller. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, learn different stuff that they hadn't. Uh, things that, you know, he'll tell a story that will relate to, whether it's a trophy or, you know, a painting, you know, there's a, a great painting that we have of Nashua, uh, you know, that has uh, Eddie Arcaro and Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons in there. And Tom could probably talk an hour about just those people in the, in the uh, that painting. So it's a little different each time and uh, it's extremely popular. I really need to go and do that. I'm actually coming up to Saratoga for the Whitney. I, I've worked Saratoga for the last two seasons, but unfortunately not this year, but I'm coming up for the Whitney I'm definitely going to try and get a Tom Durkin tour because I think that would make it extra special to have such a legendary, you know, now retired race caller show you around the racing museum. I, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. I must admit like that. That was a good move. He, he's such a personality and, uh, you know, he, he's so easygoing for people to, to talk to and relate to. And, uh, you know, he'll take questions from everybody and he'll he'll have personal anecdotes about, you know, his experiences at the track. And, uh, you know, he's a great ambassador for the game and we're, we're thrilled to have him here. It's it's been a, uh, it's been a great program to have him here doing tours. Do, do you need to book in advance for those? Do they get, you know, signed yes. up pretty quickly? Yep. Those, uh, everything, you know, you can either call the museum uh, to, to book that or do it right on the website. Um, you know, you can lock in your date right on the site and uh, you'll be all set. All right. Well, I better better get on that then. Before before I let you go, also very envious that you, I'm assuming, live close to Saratoga still. Correct. Yep. What does your normal sort of day-to-day look like? Because you wear a couple of different hats, right? Yeah, um, you know, during the during the racing season here, it's obviously um, a lot more intense <laughs> than the rest of the year. Um, but I, you know, I would say I get in the morning, and uh, you know, currently right now I'm preparing for the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Uh, and that's really the big thing I'm going to be working on for the next couple of weeks here. Uh, you know, working on seating charts, getting all the inductees set. We have uh, uh, video productions that we do for each of the inductees. Um, you know, coordinating all of the you know, the events that go around with it and everything. So the, uh, the induction is really the big thing that's taken up a lot of my time right now. Um, you know, working on continually updating our website, our interactives in the hall of fame, uh, dealing with media inquiries. Um, just, just a lot of things that, that keep me busy on a day-to-day basis. 
When is this year's induction? Friday, August 6th, the day before the Whitney. So we uh, we hold it right over at Phasig Tipton, uh, the pavilion where the sales go on. So it's Friday, August 6th at 10.30 in the morning. Uh, this year's induction is, is a double ceremony because of the pandemic. We didn't uh, uh, have a ceremony last year. So we're honoring the class of 2020 and 2021. So last year's group, which included uh, trainer Mark Cassie and uh, the multiple Eclipse Award winner Wise Dan, um, you know, as well as Tom Bowling, the historic candidate I was mentioning, and some pillars of the turf. They will be joining this year's group, which is Todd Pletcher, American Pharaoh, and Jack Fisher, the great steeplechase trainer. So it's uh, we're really excited about it. That sounds like quite the event. Is there any way people can follow it? I have seen some videos of the ceremony in the past. Yeah, it is open to the public too. So if you want to attend, you know, the seating is kind of limited because we do reserve a lot of it for the inductees and their families. Uh, but if you get there early enough, there, there's an opportunity to, to get in and watch it um, you know, live you know, right at the pavilion. But we will show it right on our website, right on the front page, uh, racingmuseum.org. Um, you know, if, if you're not able to make it to Saratoga and you want to check it out, it's, it's right on our website. Um, Naira will be streaming it as well. And uh, that guy we mentioned who does the tours there, Mr. Durkin, uh, he's, <laughs> he serves as the master of ceremonies for the Hall of Fame ceremony. So, um, you know, he's, he does a great job with it. He's been doing it for several years. So you were saying come early. What, what is early? Because I'm trying to plan my day now. <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, uh, we'll open the doors at 9.30 and the ceremony will start at 10.30. Um, you know, we'll start getting some people kind of lining up to, to get hopefully get a spot in there. Uh, you know, they come 8.30, 9 o'clock to, to be able to try to get in there early. So. Wow, that's quite the experience. Yeah, of course, if people can't make it, go to, what did you say, racingmuseum.org? It will be Racingmuseum.org. Yep, right on, it'll be, and you pop up the website and uh, the day of the ceremony, it'll be right on the front page and you just hit the play button and you'll get a live stream of it. And that is the 6th of August, the day before the Whitney. That is correct, yep. Perfect. And before I let you go, as a, a published author, what books would you recommend people reading if they'd like to know more about general history of thoroughbred racing in the U.S. or maybe more about Saratoga as well? There's there's some really good ones. Um, you know, specifically if you're looking for Saratoga, there's a book called They're Off, uh, which was written by Ed Hodling, uh, who was a great historian and, and uh, television commentator. And that book came out probably... Uh, it's probably 20 years ago, but it's still what I would consider, uh, you know, the foremost book about Saratoga's history from the early days up and through, um, you know, the, the early 90s. Um, another guy, uh, my co-author on the Travers book, Michael Veach, uh, wrote two early histories of Saratoga racing as well. One was the pre-1900s, uh, the, the, the 19th century era, and another one that went up until 1955. And he's working on a third book. So um, Michael Veach's books were called Foundations of Fame and Summit of Champions, and uh, they're both available online and on our website. Um, so those are kind of the Saratoga ones. Um, each track seems to have you know kind of some great books that follow it. There's a lot of great books out there on the Kentucky Derby, uh, a lot of great books about you know the Triple Crown winning horses. Uh, Jennifer Kelly wrote a great book last year about Sir Barton, uh, the first Triple Crown winner who really hadn't had his story told, uh, which was excellent. Um, and of course, you know I would certainly recommend Sea Biscuit, uh, the great book by Laura Hillenbrand. Um, Man of War had a couple of really good biographies, the most recent one by Dorothy Hours. Uh, so there's a lot of great stuff out there that I would, I would recommend. Well, plenty of reading to do uh, for our listeners. Brian, thank you so much. And my pleasure. It really was my pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you. Great to have, great to be on. 
if anything, you now can walk away knowing how and when the induction ceremony is for this year's and last year's class of newly inductees for the Hall of Fame, as well as how to get a, a tour with Tom Durking at the museum. You know, those are very important things to know. And of course, a little tidbit here and there about how everything started and really came about here in the US. You know, there's a lot of things going on at present in our industry. And uh, as a racing fan, sometimes I feel we ought to go back to, you know, where did this all start? And what do we love so much about the industry and the people that have played significant roles and the beautiful stories behind it? And this week, that was kind of one of those weeks for me. I really wanted to do something memorable and different. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And of course, uh, hopefully you'll tune in to the next Talk Racing to Me with Naomi and stay happy, healthy and safe. And I hope to see you in Saratoga. I do believe I'm going up in about two weeks time. I am so excited. I can't tell you. I'm, I'm planning everything. I just, it's great to be back. It is great to be back. All right. Have a good one, guys. I'm Naomi Tucker. I'm glad you tuned in once again.